Dr. High is Associate Professor and Vice Chairman at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver, Colorado. Dr. High received a bachelor and master's degree in chemical engineering from the Colorado School of Mines in Golden, Colorado. After spending time in industry working as an engineer, he returned to medical school to earn his degree from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where he graduated at the top of his class. Dr. High completed residency at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, serving as chief resident in his final year, and he completed a dermatopathology fellowship at the University of Colorado, where he remains on faculty. He was the youngest person ever promoted to associate professor and vice chairman in that department. Dr. High also has a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene from the Gorgas Institute in Lima, Peru, and has recognized expertise in infectious dermatology. He obtained his law degree in 2009 by attending classes in the evenings while working full-time as an attending at the University of Colorado. Dr. High has extensive publications and has lectured widely throughout the United States and in international forums as well. Please join me in welcoming Dr. High. Thank you. That, that was the nicest introduction I've had in a long time. Uh, uh, so I, I'm here to speak to you today about uh, documentation in dermatology, what makes a good note, what makes an effective note, what makes a safe note. Uh, as, as he mentioned, I, I am a dermatologist, a dermatopathologist. I, I practice both. I'm the vice chairman of our department. Uh, but most importantly, I have a law degree. And, and I don't practice law. I don't, do, uh, don't want to practice law. And, and I'm certainly not an attorney. I'm not your attorney. But uh, uh, having four years uh, of, of law experience um, certainly altered the way I practice medicine and gave me greater insight in, into why we do what we do. And I think it's from that experience that I'm drawing on for this lecture. Um, the, the universal truth is, is, you know, no pain, no gain. That's definitely true. And so many of the things I'd say about effective uh, documentation is it's going to take you a little bit longer than ineffective documentation. Um, but that's just a, a realism, a, a truism, and there's nothing I can do about that. Um, uh, and, and, and so one of the criticisms you, uh, you might have is, well, well that's going to take me longer. A and it probably is. I don't deny it. Uh, the, the medical record could be either, for some people, it's kind of a paper chart still, uh, maybe until about 2014 when you start to get punished for having a paper chart. Uh, for many people, it's probably an EMR, an electronic medical record. We use an electronic medical record at the University of Colorado, and we've been on EMR since maybe like 2008, 2009. But when I first started there, we certainly were a paper chart, and, and so I, I understand both, and I understand that many of you will have both. How many people have a paper chart still system? Oh, okay, so it's actually more than I would have thought. I was afraid that too, too many people would be EMR, but uh, this, is this lecture actually tries to cover aspects of both. So the purpose of the medical record is to, to provide kind of a framework for organizing the patient's care, to kind of uh, record data uh, for future care and for other people to interpret, to communicate with others about what's happened with the patient's care, and most importantly, uh, maybe for this talk, is to, it preserves forever kind of what the standard of care was that was delivered, at least if you're documenting what really happened. It's preserving what happened and, and it's allowing people in the future to judge was a standard of care delivered or was there substandard care delivered. And that's really the whole medical legal purpose of the chart. And certainly we're all aware that, you know, the chart is very, very important to lawyers and, and, and you know, uh, we, we called them suits. Uh, when, when we were in law school, we said, you know, send in the suits because everybody has a suit and tie on when they appear in court. Uh, and so that's really what I'm going to be addressing a lot in this talk. But certainly everything that makes for a good chart from a medical legal standpoint also makes for good care. Uh, they're one and the same. So, so our goal is to not only provide good care, but to protect ourselves legally, but our goal is to protect ourselves legally and also to provide good care. They're not mutually exclusive. They're, they're one and the same goal. So I, I don't have a big warm spot in my heart for attorneys, particularly as I look at hundreds of cases of, of uh, skin biopsies a day, and you know, I'm very, very acutely aware that most lawsuits in dermatology involve dermatopathology. And so you know, I understand full well uh, that we're all kind of discouraged often by the defensiveness of medicine and how defensive medicine has become. Uh, but an interesting study, you know, there's an interesting study in the 1990s that looked at 31,000 some medical charts and they had a panel of doctors look for medical errors in the record and amazingly they found maybe 1 in 25 people was harmed by some kind of medical error. So that's a lot more than you would think, 1 in 25 people 
were harmed by medical error in the medical charts. But actually only 1 in 25 of those 1 in 25, so 1 in 625 or so, went on to press any kind of lawsuit. So uh, actually lawsuits maybe are rare in comparison to the number of errors that we have. At least some people would contend that. Those same researchers went on in 2006 and they looked at, well, what happened with those cases? What happened with that 1 in 25 of 1 in 25? What happened with the lawsuits? And so they were looking at about 1,400 claims and they found uh, that maybe 90% had some kind of medical injury. 60% of the time it was due to the provider, but that means 40% of the time it wasn't due to the provider. It was due to the hospital system or the laboratory error or something else. 72% uh, uh, of cases where there was no error, there was no compensation, and that's the right result. 73% of the time where there was error, there was some compensation, but they found that the legal fees sometimes were $50,000, $60,000. They averaged like $52,000 in fees to the lawyers alone. Uh, and the time to resolution was five years, so these lawsuits uh, drug on for many, many years, and you can imagine the stress that, that not only the plaintiff was under, but the defendant was under uh, for those 60 months uh, that it took to resolve these cases. And so you can kind of look at the glasses half full or half empty. Uh, you can say, well, 90% of the people that were injured actually received compensation. You know, the courts were right about 75% of the time. Isn't that great? We have a very careful and deliberate system. Or you can look at it as like, well, 10% of the people that got paid didn't have anything wrong with them at all. You can say, well, 75% is a C. Most people in the room probably would, would jump off a building if they got a C. Everybody in dermatology is very, very, uh, very, very um, intellectually gifted. And, and so I'm sure most people wouldn't be happy with a C. And you can say, well, gosh, $50,000 in five years just to adjudicate these errors, it's a wasteful and fickle system that we have. And so, so it really depends on which point you're at. And, and you know, something that looks really, really great from one angle often looks really, really crappy from another angle. And so in law school, it was, it was very, very, you know, people, I was the only doctor in my class. And so anytime there was some kind of medical legal thing, everybody would turn to me and say, well, what do you think, doc? And, 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 you know, I'd have people say that defensive medicine doesn't exist, and, and I just found that preposterous. Defensive medicine does exist. About, probably about a third of the tests I run, I don't have to really run, but I run them just on the rare chance that it might turn out positive. Uh, so, so certainly people have different strong perspectives uh, in the matter, um, but I, I definitely think, um, you know, I probably tend towards more the wasteful and fickle uh, approach than the, the uh, uh, good approach. Uh, there is some good news for everybody in the room. Dermatology, this is a very, very recent article in the New England Journal. Dermatology is a very, very low-risk specialty down here with family medicine, psychiatry, uh, other things. Uh, the number of lawsuits in dermatology for the number of dermatologists is very, very low, and that's good. Uh, one, one thing that is interesting, though, is, is that most doctors are sued at some point in their life, and therefore most providers are probably involved in some regard as well. If you do mostly medicine, uh, you have about a 50-50 chance of being sued by the time you retire. If you do more surgical procedures, if you're more procedurally oriented, you had maybe a th uh, you know, three and four chance of being sued by the time you were 45. Uh, so certainly the more you do, maybe from a procedural standpoint, the more at risk you are uh, for litigation. On the flip side, again, to look from the other angle, uh, when, when dermatologists were involved in lawsuits or dermatology providers were involved in lawsuits and the lawsuit was successfully prosecuted, the damages were much, much higher. Here's the national average. Uh, here's the average skin cancer award. Much, much, much higher. And dermatology and dermatopathology ranks number two in the number of lawsuits that won more than a million dollars. So while lawsuits might be rare, uh, they might be a little bit more devastating in dermatology. In other words, the consequences for, for missing something like a melanoma might be much, much greater, even if it happens less frequently. There's all kinds of things you could be sued for. If I looked at, I looked at just the data in Colorado once, and I found that lasers accounted for some lawsuits, melanomas accounted for some lawsuits, even things that you don't think of very often, like light therapy or, or lupus accounted for some lawsuits, but there's, very, very, there's a myriad, there's a, there's a plethora uh, of quagmires which you could find yourself in, involved in. Uh, and so while lawsuits might be really kind of rare, you know, remember one in, uh, maybe one in 25 people was harmed by a medical error, and, and then even one in 25 of those harmed people went on to file a lawsuit. So, you know, many people say, well, lawsuits are pretty rare. Uh, that's true, but to, to those people, I always say, like, 
two million wildebeest and zebras cross the Serengeti every year in the big annual migration. And only a few of those zebras and, and, and wildebeest will be attacked by a lion or anything, uh, uh, maybe a hippo or a crocodile or something horrible like that. But it's no less traumatic for the single person that gets involved in the lawsuit. So, so it really, truly, even if you, you can't take any solace in the fact, well, gosh, I'm the only uh, dermatologist in Seattle getting sued right now, it doesn't make you feel any better when, when it happens to you. Uh, doctors and providers in general take it as a very, very personal insult on their skills, whereas lawyers see it as just simply a business transaction. That's all it is to them. It's just a business transaction. It pays the electric bill, the copier bill, uh, all those things. So there are some concerns that, that physician extenders have that, that physicians don't have. And probably the biggest one is this, has anybody heard of this, respondeat superior? It literally translates in Latin to let the master answer. So physician extenders, whether they be PAs or anybody else that's supervised by a doctor, are rarely sued by themselves. Almost always uh, the PA plus the supervising doctor will be sued. And that's because uh, it's usually the case that the physician has the power to hire, the power to pay, the power to direct the work, and the power to dismiss the PA. And hence, he's seen as the master of the PA. And so anything the PA does, uh, he's ultimately responsible for as well. It turns out that physician extenders are actually very rarely sued, um, but, but very infrequently are they sued by themselves. Almost always, their supervising doctor is sued as well and, and is involved in any kind of settlement. Actually, the settlements uh, for, for physician extenders are higher. Remember, the other average was about $112,000. The settlements are higher, actually, for physician extenders when they happen, and that's interesting as well. So keep in mind, when any, when any error happens in medicine, uh, you know, for lawyers, it's a business transaction. That's all it is. It's just a business. They, 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 don't, they, they will sue the pants out of you one week and then make an appointment with you the following week. To, to, they, they don't see that as odd or funny or anything like that. Uh, they just see it as a business transaction. And so they try to find as many targets as they can. It's somewhat of a shakedown, if you will excuse the term. I, I mean, if, if you appear somewhere, they have people that they actually pay to go through the charts with a highlighter and highlight anybody with initials behind them, respiratory therapist, physician assistant, MD. And then they just lump all those people together and say, surely you played some role in this. And to some extent, I'm kind of simplifying it a little bit, but to some extent they figure, well, gosh, if I can get twenty or $30,000 out of you to settle, that's twenty or $30,000 that I didn't have and that my client didn't have. And so I'll just name four or five people and I'll just kind of see who sticks. You know, I'll throw them all up against the wall and, and I'll see who sticks. They, they literally say that on occasion. So... The common causes of lawsuits against physician extenders are usually an inadequate examination, an inadequate supervision, delayed referral to a consultant, often the, the supervising doctor, or failure to diagnose. Those are the big four things. But, but here's how it relates to the discussion we have at hand. A poorly documented medical record can turn good medicine into an indefensible case. Because really, what's the only evidence we have of the standard of care that you provided again? It's the written record. We don't have a videotape of the encounter, we hope, <laughs> or, or anything like that. All we have is what you wrote down about that, that, that visit and then your testimony and the patient's testimony as to whether that's really truthfully what happened or not. And, and this is echoed in other movies. Sometimes this is a Jamie Foxx movie where he said, it's not about what you know, it's about what you can prove in court. If you haven't recorded it, there's another saying, if you didn't record it, if you didn't record it in the chart, it didn't happen. Uh, and that's where, where that uh, phrase comes from. There's no way other than your testimony to prove that that didn't, did or didn't occur. So let's just talk about malpractice just a, for a minute so everybody's speaking uh, in the same language. Malpractice is a, is a civil action. It's tort law. You're never ever going to go to jail. Uh, the only reward for the plaintiff is money. We can't give them back their ear or give them back uh, somebody that's passed away because of alleged malpractice or anything like that. All we can do is reward them with money. Uh, this is a real filing in Colorado court where a, paint, a patient uh, acting as their own attorney uh, sought the death penalty against the doctor. They didn't have your understanding that this is a tort. It's a civil action. 
There's not going to be any jail time. There's certainly not going to be any death penalty uh, for a doctor. But it took this doctor, again, many, many, many motions and much, much money to make this thing go away, even though it was preposterous from the outset. The doctor actually had to pay money to make this go away with his attorney. Uh, so lawyers do serve some function because, again, this was filed by the patient themselves, which is allowed in the United States. There are elements of malpractice. Every single malpractice assertion has to have a duty, a standard of care, a breach of duty, a cause in fact, proximate cause, and damages. If you don't have these elements, if you can't prove each one of these elements, uh, the, the, the case will go away. The judge will dismiss it. You have to prove those things every single time, either to a judge or a jury. Uh, you can think of it in another more simple way. You have to have a duty to act or a standard uh, to uphold. You have to have negligent action or inaction, and then damages have to result. The biggest thing I find when people call and run hypothetical situations by me is that there really aren't any damages. Let's say you missed a melanoma last week, uh, and, and the patient knew you were wrong, they thought you were full of it, and they went to another doctor three weeks later and got the correct diagnosis. Well, the big problem there is there aren't going to be any damages. Nothing's happened in three weeks. There is no change in survival for three-week delayed diagnosis or anything like that. So all those things are important every single time. If any one of those things is missing, there's no malpractice. There are standards of care. The standard of care is established through expensive testimony. You have to pay to fly experts uh, from all around the United States and say, well, the way I like to handle XYZ is, the way I prefer to do XYZ is, and the standard of care has to be established. The standard of care is just what a reasonably prudent provider would do. You don't have to be right. You don't have to be correct. If every reasonable and prudent provider would have missed that diagnosis, then you're okay missing it too. Uh, and certainly there are things like infections, things like that. Just because something has a bad outcome doesn't mean that it's malpractice. Plenty of wounds that are done perfectly uh, with sterile technique, everything else, seem to get infected for reasons that we don't know. So there's, no, there's nothing inherently, uh, it's not inherent malpractice simply to have a bad outcome. That's, that's not the case. So every time a plaintiff files an attorney, the, uh, the patient's attorney files a lawsuit, uh, there are costs, and again, the cost might be $125,000 to $250,000 uh, to persecute uh, a malpractice case. And, and so, so with that being the case, you know, we're not interested, attorneys aren't interested in every single case. They're, they actually only take maybe one in 30 to one in 100 people that call an attorney's office uh, will the attorney actually accept as a client. So most of the time they listen to the story and they say, gosh, you know, a three-week delay on your melanoma, gosh, you know, I, I just don't feel like I'm the right attorney for you. Uh, and, or you deserve more than me, or whatever they want to say to get out of it. But they're looking for a certain fact pattern, and I'll come back to this in a minute, but they're looking for a certain fact pattern. The easier the case is to prove, the more they want it. Because again, they're investing their own money on the hopes that they'll win. If they don't win, they get goose egg, they get zero. And so they're looking and listening and investigating for a certain fact pattern. I'll come back to that in a minute. They're not interested in difficult cases. They're not interested in very, very fine where's Waldo, they call them in law school. Very, very fine differences in opinion. Oh, you know, there were these three cells down at the corner of the slide. They're not interested in that. That's going to be too risky for their $150,000. Now, if you ever sued, you can provide a defense. You can say, gosh, you know, I disagree. I provided the standard of care, and there was no breach in the standard of care. Again, if there's no, no breach in the standard of care, there's no valid lawsuit. Or sometimes you assert an affirmative defense. You might say, ah, well, I put that infection was a risk of the procedure, and they got an infection. No malpractice. Uh, and the other one that comes up sometimes is statute of limitations. Does everybody feel like they know what a statute of limitations is? It's the time in which you must file a lawsuit. And the reason that is is because, you know, you can't file a lawsuit from, from care you received 40 years ago. All those nurses are dead. All those records have been destroyed. Nobody remembers anything about it. So the statute of limitations is designed to keep a lawsuit fresh so that it's, it's clear all the witnesses are still alive and can be gathered up. Everything's fresh. Um, so the standard of, uh, statute of limitations is the time period when you, which you must file a suit. It, it might vary from six months to four years depending upon the state. It's de determined at the state to state to state level. 
It's actually interesting. Here's a real case followed, filed against a very famous dermatologist. This is a dermatologist you would know if, if, if I put it, the name in there. Um, but he, uh, the plaintiff sought care for a mole. The derm biopsied it. The derm read it himself as a benign lesion. Two years later, uh, the patient sought care from a surgeon. The surgeon requested medical records. And the derm looked at the slide again and said, oops, that was a melanoma. Shoot. And so he amended the report, which he should do because that starts the statute of care in many ways, as you'll find out. He amended the suit, but then, or amended the, the report, but then the patient sued him, and it turns out that in Virginia, uh, the statute of limitations was two years, and this was two years later. So he tried to say, well, it's been two years, too bad, so sad, you can't sue me. Boo, like that, all right? And so it actually went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that the statute of limitations does not begin on the date of service. So the, the date on the top of your medical note doesn't start the statute of limitations uh, uh, lapsing uh, or, or running. It, they ruled that when the melanoma moved from the epidermis into the dermis, that's when the statute of limitations, when the heck was that? That's the dumbest rule I've ever heard. So, so it shows you that A, courts don't know anything about medicine. <laughs> But B, it shows you that really the statute of limitations uh, uh, starts, starts running from the time in which a person reasonably should have been alerted to an injury, and it's not the date of service. So it has nothing to do with the date of service on your form, zero. But it could have everything to do with the date you told the patient, whoops, I made a mistake. And so that's why we always tell you to amend things that you know are wrong then and now. If you find out a report was delivered wrong or anything was wrong, make the correction there and tell the patient about the correction because that would be the date at which the statute of limitations started running. And then lastly, you always have to have damages. No damages, no case. No attorney's going to risk his $150,000 for your personal grudge. You didn't like the way the doctor presented the information. You were inconvenienced by the drive across town. That's never going to fly for an attorney. An attorney's not interested in risking his money for your grievance. So there have to be damages. There have to be quantifiable damages. So how does this come around to, to good documentation? Because weak records invite people to sue you. Doing a bad job in clinic documenting your work invites people to sue you. And why? Because the plaintiff's attorney always interviews the client. I told you they maybe take one in 30 to one in 100 cases. But then what do they do? They call for the records and they send the records to yet another doctor. And they say, what do you think, doc? I get these calls constantly, constantly. Dr. High, will you please just take a look at this case and tell us what you think? We're not sure what to do. And how do I decide what happened? Let's say I do. I almost never do. But let's say I agree to do it. Okay, I'll, I'll look, at your, look at your documents. I decide if you delivered good care based on what you wrote. I don't call you. I don't say, gosh, I really know that guy. They're great. They're a really good dermatologist. I, what I do is I look at the records. And if the records are good, then I say, you know what? You don't have a case here. There's no case. And if your records are bad, I say, gosh, I, I'm kind of worried. I think there might be a case here. Okay, so that's why it's so, so, so very important that you document what transpired and, and, and what the standard of care was that you delivered. So this is a real case that happened just a few, just a few weeks ago. I got a phone call, Dr. High, will you listen to this? I have a 47-year-old client. She had a rash on the scalp. She went to the doctor. The dermatologist provide, provided uh, steroids. 18 months later, she went to a different dermatologist. A biopsy was performed. It was an infiltrative basal cell carcinoma. She had a huge defect. This 47-year-old woman had a five-centimeter defect at the junction between her hair and her forehead. And she's devastated. It's been horribly, horribly uh, uh, disfiguring to her. Uh, and so this patient wants to sue for a delayed diagnosis. This is actually really what I typed. I sat there and I typed the note in. This is actually the note. Patient presents itchy rash for months on the anterior scalp. Red itchy plaque, itchy in the, in the objective, red itchy plaque on anterior scalp, subderm, Cinelar solution provided. That's it. Nothing else. That's the whole entire note. It's kind of bad. Here's other things that I found out about the case. 
patient actually had a BCC on her face at 41 years old, which required a large Mohs procedure. It's not her first cancer. It's not her first Mohs procedure. That cuts both ways. You should have probably suspected cancer because she has a history of non-moma skin cancer, but this woman also knows a lot about skin cancer. She had a huge procedure done on her face. So why did she wait 18 months to go back to the doctor when the Cinelar solution didn't work? That one cuts both ways. Should have still been in the note. Patient made and canceled two follow-up appointments. That's bad. As an attorney, I don't want that client now. Well, they, they made two appointments and canceled them both? Ooh. Uh, I also informed the lawyer that basal cell carcinoma plus the word slow growth has approximately 17 gazillion hits in Google, and that truthfully probably things hadn't really changed that much over 18 months. But go back to the note again, no size, no nothing, horrible note. This would have been a better note, crusted itchy plaque on the head, patient presents for scaling predict plaque for six months, blah, blah, blah. Measurements, 3.7 by 4.0. Remember, her final defect was 5 millimeters, or 5 centimeters. That would be no big deal. 5 centimeters, it was already 4, four by 3.5 at the time she visited. Consistent with seborrheic dermatitis, trial of fluosinolide BID until resolved. If persists or fails, then return for biopsy, follow up in three months. That result would have, so you see the difference. This note would have put an end to the lawsuit. I don't know if I successfully dissuaded the lawyer from a, from, from suing this man, or if he just went and found a different expert, I don't know. But this note would have prevented a lawsuit entirely. That's how important it is. So the moral of the story, adequate documentation does take more time, but how much time will you spend in depositions, in counseling, in marriage counseling for the stress that the lawsuit is having on your marriage, everything else? How much time are you willing to invest later to save a few moments today? <laughs> Not very many for me. So the principal problem with medical notes is usually the absence of data, a failure to note the treatment recommendations, and the failure to document the need for follow-up appointments. Those are the th three things that people do poorly in medical notes. So I came up with this acronym, can't everyone document the most important stuff, <laughs> all right? Which is an acronym for chief complaint, extent of history and physical examination, diagnosis or impression, treatment details, medications administered, if any, instructions provided, if any, and when they should follow up or who they were sent to. Those are the, the most important things. Can't everyone document the most important stuff? If you have that in your note, no matter whether you use a SOAP form, whether you use an EMR kind of template form or anything else, you want to ask yourself, can't everyone document the most important stuff? If it's in the note, good. If it's not in the note, Make it better. So we're to tips and suggestions for better medical notes, safer medical notes, notes that provide better care in the end. This is what it is. Chief complaint or reason for visit. It focuses the visit for you, which is good. This is what you're here for. This is what you told my nursing staff, my MA, you were here for. Let's talk about this. If, if you were really here for the, the, the discharge from the end of your penis or anything like that, you should have included that in the chief complaint. That's what I always used to get when I was an intern. I'd, I'd say, okay, great, you're here to talk about your ringworm. And they'd say, well, no, not really. I have some discharge. Uh, and I say, well, gosh darn it, we have to change the chief complaint now. The chief complaint should really pertain to the visit. And sometimes people play around because they're embarrassed to tell your medical assistant what the real reason is. But the chief complaint is really, really important because it focuses the visit. And it allows me later, when I'm looking at your chart as an expert, either for the defense or for the plaintiff, to understand what was the chief complaint? Why was the patient there? Use the patient's own language. It's good to always use quotes. You actually use quotes. I'm here for a rough spot on my heel. I'm here for uh, my wife maybe come in for crusty spots on my back. I have bugs crawling out of my skin for two years and no one can figure it out. If you use that quote, do you have to tell me that the patient's crazy or malingering or anything else? I know. I see patients. So, so that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful statement. I know exactly in my mind's eye what that patient was like. You don't need to say any more. <laughs> I got it. Chart allergies prominently to, or make a point to discuss allergies. I've actually started lately 
asking the patient directly because I supervise residents and then I have this EMR that pops way too much stuff up in my face like interactions like between topical gels and, and, and you know foot baths and the weird stuff like that. I get, this EMR is popping so much stuff up in my face I just have decided to just ask the patient directly, do you have any allergies I need to know about? Because then it's just me and the patient for just a moment, even though there's residents, medical students, everything else. Because the number two medication error is simply prescribing, prescribing medicine for which the patient has already told you they're allergic to. That's the number two error, prescribing medicine that they've already told you that they're allergic to. It's hard to believe, isn't it, in today's age? Um, and again, this, this proves another point. What's the what's the favorite uh, what's a fa what's a favorite client for for a plaintiff's attorney? Who do they want most? Easy cases. If the patient's already told you they're allergic to a medicine and you prescribe it, is that an easy case? Yes, that's a very very appealing case. So just make it a point to either write the allergies again, even if you have an EMR where you can't do that. Just type the allergies in the in the history. Patient allergic to Keflex. Just get in the habit because it's the number two error is prescribing medicines for which they've already told you somewhere in that complicated EMR that they're allergic to. Right, legibly, many of you said you're still using paper charts. Look at this note right here. I think that says bleeding, maybe, maybe. That makes you look bad. In fact, in, in cases when I was a, a medical student, we got to try cases in the presence of a real attorney. That was always super easy. If you're a sloppy writer, I got you nailed. You better just get your checkbook out. So, so make an effort to write clearly. Don't do things like drop leading zeros. It's a personal pet peeve when somebody puts 0.2 and not 0.2 because that little tiny point, what if that little point is in the line of the chart right there? Don't, don't, uh, don't never write in a margin. Never try to squeeze the note in. Always use a fresh sheet of paper. Dictation, it's actually been shown that studies, uh, studies have shown that dictated notes are usually more complete because of uh, fatigue of the writer and time commitment to writing and or typing. Dictated notes are always more complete. So in certain situations, if you anticipate that it's a complicated case or it involves an accident or an industrial accident or some kind of workman's compensation and you just know for a fact it's going to be litigious, consider dictating it because the, the note generally will end up more complete. But you have to be careful about avoiding delays in dictation. The time of dictation is recorded forever. The time in which you signed off on it is recorded forever. So you have to be careful about that. Never, ever, ever dic uh, use dictated but not read. The, the people that have that stamp have this size brain. That doesn't buy you anything. That just shows that you're lazy. That doesn't buy you any, there's no kind of excuse for, oh, well, I dictated it, but I never read it. That doesn't play well with a jury. They're not like, oh, I understand. I dictate stuff all the time and don't read it. <laughs> never send out any unsigned dictations. I have a, 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 a rule in my laboratory, my DermPath laboratory, that if they ever send out an unsigned report, I will summarily fi fire them on the scene. I'll just fire you then. Never, ever, ever send out something that I haven't looked at first. Because what if, I, what if I, I had every intent of changing that? Uh, that? That could lead to a disaster. Amending notes, if you have written notes, you do a single line so that I can still see what was written there originally, and you sign and date the change. You never, ever, ever change a note after a claim has been initiated. If you see something that's wrong and you realize now that it's wrong, tell your attorney about it. Don't try to change the note after a lawsuit has already started. There are sophisticated ways to detect if a chart has been altered. Never think you're smarter than they are. There are people who can do like PCR on the, or like a, a mass spectrometry on the ink and even determine if it's the same ink. Never think you're so clever that you're going to be able to get that past somebody. And evidence of questionable or altered entries is admissible in court and it basically makes everything else you'll say a lie. Once they've proven that you've changed something, Everything else you say is a lie. You might as well just get your checkbook out again. <coughs> Nothing is more devastating to an innocent provider's defense than inaccurate or illeg illegible or skimpy record, except for a record which has been changed after the fact. Never, ever, ever change a note for any reason. 
Now that we have these online things, you should always dispense drug and patient information and education, and it's okay to show signs of customary practice. If it's your customary practice every time you prescribe Retin-A to give a certain handout, it's okay to say, well, I do that every single time I, do, I give Retin-A. So just get used to just saying acne, placed on tretinoin, uh, patient medical information number three provided. I don't have to say exactly what's on patient medical information number three as long as it's my usual and customary practice to always hand out patient medical information handout number three. Be very clear about referrals. I see this all the time from the residents. Remember, I supervise a whole bunch of residents that just come in from internship this week, actually. Uh, this is their first week as being a, a, a pseudodermatologist. Vaginal bleeding to OBGYN. That should be patient to see Dr. Smith in OBGYN for vaginal bleeding understands the importance she will call today. She will call today. Not I will call today and not will call. What if I take out that word, will call today? That's ambiguous. Were you going to call or was the patient going to call? That one extra word, yeah, it took you 14 more seconds to do it. But again, how much money are you willing to spend on depositions and how much time are you willing to invest in marriage counseling? To, to write that one extra word, she will call today. Back pain to ortho should really be patient states he will call his ortho today to address back pain. Not, not to ortho, he will call his ortho today. I don't even know who it is but he said he would do it. Good physical exam notes, you always need to think about, and this is good for the first year residents that just started two weeks ago. Think about what an AK is. It's a thin scaling non-indurated papule of X millimeters with scant erythema. It's not just simply a scaly papule because squamous cell carcinoma is a scaly papule. So it's a thin non-indurated scaly papule. HSV is a small, clear, clear fluid-filled vesicle on an erythematous base. It's not just simply a blister. A blister could be 14 centimeters across. So, so you need to actually describe it. And yes, it is going to take longer. It's going to take you longer. But it's going to save your patuki in the end. So it's going to take you a little bit longer. You might have to drop one patient care appointment from your schedule to make up for all this during the day but it's better. Drug rash is a symmetric, blanchable, erythematous maculopapular eruption on the arms, legs, and trunk. It's not photodistributed. It's not just rash, rash on, on arms, legs, trunk. It doesn't tell me anything. It's not defensible. As your attorney, I could never go back and, and really, really convince a jury that you were describing a very minimal drug rash. Size matters here. Of all the things that clinicians do poorly, documenting the size of lesion has got to be at the top, and I look at lots and lots and lots of records. Almost nobody documents size anymore. So it leaves it open. Think about that basal cell carcinoma on the scalp. If that doctor would have said three and a half by four centimeters, and it's now five centimeters, it's 20% bigger, the attorney would be like, I'm going to go to court to argue for 20% bigger lesion? No, I'm not going to do that. I don't like you that much. So, so, so again, he did nothing. He didn't describe the size at all. So that leaves it open to speculation. Was it one centimeter? Was it half a centimeter? And now it's five. So, so size does matter. It's the one thing I see that everyone does badly. Brand new doctors, old doctors, everyone does size of a lesion badly. Size of lesion really matters with things like verrucous carcinoma. This verrucous carcinoma is huge, huge. But verrucous carcinoma looks like a giant wart. Think if you did a little tiny shave biopsy, little tiny shave biopsy, and you said, rule out wart. Well, gosh, under the microscope, it's going to look like a wart. I'm just going to agree with you. It's a wart because you didn't tell me it's a 9 by 6 centimeter plaque penetrating the entirety of the foot and popping out the other side. <laughs> then I'd say, gosh, you know, how about giving me a little bit more generous sample? We'll skip that one. Understand the basics and limitations of dermatopathology. The number of biopsies is going way, 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 way up. We do two and a half times the biopsies that we did uh, uh, 20 years ago. Two and a half times the biopsies that we did two years ago. The size of biopsies is going way, 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 way down. So more biopsies, smaller biopsies. It's a disaster waiting to happen, right? More biopsies, smaller biopsies. No pathology report is beyond reproach. There's no stone tablet. There's no burning bush. No, no stone tablet, no burning bush. There's all these people that are involved in a biopsy, a courier, a logger, a grocer, an embedder, a cutter, a labeler, and, and then the dermatopathologist himself, the transcriptionist. 
the transcriptionist assemblier, the, distribu the distributor of reports, all those people. There's 28 people between me and you at my laboratory. I have 28 employees between my dermatologist and me. 28 people ready to make an error, ready to have a bad day, anything else. So you always have to question your biopsy repo reports. This is a misidentification of specimens has shown four out of every 1,000 specimens, four out of every 1,000 specimens are mislabeled. So it really says John Smith on the slide, but it's really Bill Williams tissue. Four out of 1,000. Who thinks they do 1,000 biopsies a year themselves? So four of your biopsies might be wrong. <laughs> they might be someone else's tissue. Keep that in mind. Crap in, crap out. Don't write rule out melanoma for everything. Don't write rule out cancer. Don't write rash. Don't write nub. Don't write 238.2 for everything because then I have no idea, as the dermatopathologist, how worried was this person? What did the rash look like? Anything like that. I don't know anything because they write that for every single thing. You must provide a good, good clinical information to your dermatopathologist and the excuse of I don't want to bias the pathologist is just, just a tired, trite excuse for being lazy. I need to know what you're looking for. If you're looking for a nine by six centimeter plaque that's popping out the other side of the guy's foot, I need to know that. I don't need rule out wart because it'll look like a wart to me and then I'll be wrong and you'll believe me and then the patient will believe us and then we'll both be in trouble. Again, when one person, anybody think, oh, if there's a dermatopathology error, it'll be the fault of the dermatopathologist. Anybody believe that? If you do, you're a fool. I have a bridge to sell you. If your dermatopathologist gets sued, you're going to be sued too. You might ultimately get out of it, but we're just going to throw everybody against the wall and see who sticks. And if you do things like, gosh, write, rule out malignancy for everything, if I'm a good attorney, I'm going to figure that out. You write rule out malignancy for everything, don't you? You can't be troubled to provide a 15-second history for your patient. Is that true? And then your attorney will object, and I'll say, I withdraw the question, and I'll walk away. But the jury heard it. The jury heard that you write rule out malignancy for everything because you don't care about your patients. I withdraw the question. Have a good system for reports to return. Uh, a person performing the biopsy always has the highest responsibility for a result. I, I know of cases where a, uh, a biopsy went to a laboratory and no report ever returned. No report ever returned. And usually this is a family practitioner, not a dermatologist, because most dermatologists have biopsy books. But I know of several lawsuits that were melanomas, they were never ever sent by the dermatopathologist, and the primary care physician never ever inquired as to why he didn't get a report. Who's the ultimate responsibility for getting a result? Who has the ultimate responsibility for getting a result? The person that did the biopsy. So even though the dermatopathologist did a horrible thing, like never signed out a case, it's still sitting in a folder on his desk for a year and a half. The person who has ultimate responsibility is the person who performed the biopsy. So you have to have a biopsy book. You have to have some way to know. You have to have somebody run the biopsy book every two weeks, look for outstanding results, things like that, because the person that performed the biopsy has ultimate responsibility. Sure, they might divide it 45-55, but you have ultimate responsibility to find a report. Uh, this is why I do this at my lab or at my, in my clinic. I actually have the nurses hand them a thing that says, if you don't hear from us in two weeks, you call us. So at least I can now say they're 25, 35, 45% responsible themselves because I handed them a piece of paper saying, if you don't hear from us in two weeks, you contact us. So that's one little tiny hint you can do. Oh, and you need to have hard rules for in and out because every, every person knows about a situation where something that was in the in basket accidentally got put in the out basket, accidentally got filed, and it never ever got reviewed by the provider. So I have a rule that if it doesn't have my signature and stamp on it, I don't care which basket it is. It doesn't go into the chart until it has that stamp and that signature on it. Because what if it just gets put in the wrong basket? Document informed consent. It's fine to have the, the forms that, you, that we all have. In most states, you have to disclose, disclose any risk that happens more than 1% of the time. 
and that's fine, but you should also put it in the medical record as well. You should also say that there is a consent form somewhere else. Why is that? Because when the attorney calls for the record, he gets exactly that. He gets the record. He doesn't get all those little extra pieces of paper, or he may or may not. So you always want to say in the medical record what else is out there. Because you want to prevent a suit before it ever starts. Document informed refusal. Be, uh, uh, the, oops. Document informed refusal. Patient offered left ankle biopsy because I am concerned it may be cancer. I explained the risk of no biopsy, including the possibility of missing a cancer or a pre-malignant condition. The patient expressed understanding and declined. That's informed refusal. That's, that's gold. If I'm a attor plaintiff's attorney and I read that, I say, gosh, you know, I might not be the right man for you. You deserve a better attorney than me. You deserve a better attorney than me. Because I don't want that case. I want easy cases. I want easy cases. Document missed appointments in the record. Patient returns for follow-up on the scalp condition. This goes back to my scalp. Patient returns for follow-up on the scalp condition. Missed appointments on 4-5-10 and 6-11-2011. If that would have been in that person's note, I never would have gotten the call from the attorney that he wanted to sue this person. Because he would have said, oh my gosh, missed appointments. That plays horribly with a jury. But again, when the attorney calls for the records, he's not going to call for a list of missed appointments. So he might start harassing you, even though in the end, it's a good thing. Document non-compliance for the same reason. Patient continues to use alcohol and isotretinoin. That's a common statement. But this is a little bit better. Patient continues to use alcohol and isotretinoin. Explained this can lead to dangerous metabolites that are stored in the body for years. Again, this is going to take a little bit longer, but it's a much better, much stronger statement. Give clear and slightly personalized follow-up instructions. Follow-up PRN. The residents do this all the time. Follow-up PRN. Follow-up if pigmented lesion on the left arm enlarges, changes color, or otherwise alters in its behavior. It's better. It just takes a little longer, but it's better. Avoid subjective or pejorative remarks in the record, things that, that belittle a patient. Patient is rude. That's, that's pejorative. Patient offers only short answers, yes and no. Later, if I'm questioning you in a deposition, I can be, say, what was your interpretation of his short answers? Well, he was being rude. But I didn't say he was rude until you drew it out of me. So I just said, the patient gives only short answers, yes and no. Patient is an alcoholic. Don't say stuff like that. Say, patient drinks five to 10 alcoholic beverages daily and often begins his day with alcohol. I said he's an alcoholic, basically, but I didn't do it in such an inflammatory way that it might play wrong with a jury or something like that. Patient is a poor historian. How many people, I've written that. I wish I hadn't. I wish I had wrote, patient has difficulty with dates, diagnoses, and details. Has no outside records, cannot recall the names of any prior providers. It's less inflammatory if you ever get drawn to the carpet on it. It's less inflammatory. Oh, you were judging the patient. You were judging this poor, frail, elderly 83-year-old who was doing the best they can. You labeled them a poor historian. How rude. <laughs> so so uh, just say, patient has difficulty with dates, diagnoses, and details, has no outside records, cannot recall names of prior providers. Avoid criticism of other providers in the chart. Uninformed or unintended remarks can trigger lawsuits. You don't really know. All you're dealing with is the patient says. The patient says they went to Dr. XYZ and that doctor completely ignored them. You weren't there. You don't know if that's the case. So just kind of don't even mention it. Don't even bring it up. Patient has been to other providers, period. Go one step further and explanatory comments can even deflect a lawsuit. There are many people in Denver that owe me beers and they don't even know it. They don't even know they owe me beers. Because instead of saying inflammatory things, I said, well, you know, sometimes cancer grows back, even when everybody does everything right. That's just how it is. And I planted a little tiny seed in the patient's mind. Sometimes, Dr. High said sometimes cancers just grow back even when everything's done right. Hmm, that must be the case here. And, and then I say, samples are just that. They're samples. Maybe, they're, maybe your biopsy didn't have the right tissue in it. Maybe Dr. Smith did everything right. You know, samples are just samples. Maybe it just wasn't the right sample. And the patient says, hmm, 
Maybe it wasn't a missed biopsy. Maybe it was just a bad sample. Hmm, Dr. High said that might be the case. Yeah. So, so again, planting a seed of goodness might have good results for everybody involved. And the last thing is that PCPs and providers of all kinds with fewer claims had more statements of orientation and education, laughed and used humor more. I, I'm rarely serious with patients. I always, try to be, I always try to be upbeat, kind of funny, kind of, kind of uh, um, uh, lively with patients. And, and slightly longer visits. Again, no pain, no gain. Is it going to take you a little longer to chart like this? Absolutely. Are you going to be a little glad, more glad when you avoid a lawsuit? Absolutely. And then the two best instruments for safer medical care is a phone call and tincture of follow-up. People always, uh, the, the residents always tease me that I tend to follow my patients a little tiny bit closer than everyone else. When everybody else would do a six-month follow-up, I do a four-month. When everybody else would do a four-month, I do a three-month. I just tend to follow people a little closer. Am I going to see fewer patients that way in a year? Probably. But am I okay with that? Yeah, yeah, probably I am. Because again, I don't want to go to marriage counseling. I don't want to do it. These are my kids. This is Morgan, who looks just like me, and Madison, who looks just like my, my darker-appearing wife. And they're great kids. That I love them to death, and I made them take this picture so that Daddy could use it in his talk. And immediately after Daddy took this picture, Madison started choking <laughs> and, and, and so that's how I spend most of my days. Is I'm not nearly as productive as I used to be. I think we're on time, at least as far as I can tell, um, according to my watch. Does anybody have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, I uh, don't know how many people work for health systems and use EMR that they're now discussing open charts. So open charts is now becoming an, an issue of whether or not those are going to be implemented. And I'm, I'm nervous about it just because I'm afraid that we won't be able to be as candid with, you know, with our, our colleagues about how patients are acting. We're going to have to go kind of behind the, the back, and if they read anything that they're, they're mad about, that that's going to make them sue more, like, you know, more likely. It might, and it might be even more impetus for that slide I have, you know, where you're, you're, you're going to be less inflammatory but convey the same information. Uh, it, that might be even more true. So an open chart is a chart that anybody can look at. The patient, in fact, we have it at the university where it's my health connection. You can actually get in the chart and dig around and things like that. So, so that's one reason to avoid uh, real, real inflammatory statements for sure. But really, truthfully, this is a funny thing. I had a patient, uh, I had a client of my Dermpath practice uh, call me and she said, yeah, I had this patient in here and he wanted the chart and I just told him to buzz off and beat it. And, and uh, you know, I didn't want to give him the chart. And I thought, why on earth did you do that? I said, I don't know, Dr. Bob, uh, that, that's not going to work out real well. And sure enough, that guy got an attorney to get his chart. So, and, and the patient is always, always, always going to get the chart, always, every single time. There's no reason to even fight them about it. They're going to get the chart. So that being said, you really should be writing charts uh, that, are, that are appropriate in the first place. And under HIPAA, Everyone, everyone, everyone has the opportunity under HIPAA to ask for an amendment of their, of their, of their note. So if they, if they find something in the note that they don't like, they can say, you know, I'd ask you to amend that. And I've had patients ask me that before. And you, you, they can ask you, but you can say, no, I don't want to do that. The note, in my opinion, is accurate. So really, an open chart might, might be a little tiny bit more open, but in truth, you can already have the, the chart and you can already ask for amendments. So, so uh, I, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but it might not be as bad as you think it might Even be. with truths like obese patient or non-compliant patient. Shoot, I'm obese. Like that. But I mean, that's, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, their feelings are going to get hurt, and therefore they're going to go and, you know, yeah. hopefully not be successful. But. Well, you know, instead of obese, uh, do a BMI. Uh, it gets to my slide where I said, you know, instead of saying patient is an alcoholic, say, Patient drinks five to ten beverages a day and op uh, you know, starts the day with an eye opener. That's an alcoholic. That, that su suffices for the cage questions. I think it might challenge us to come up with new ways to say, you know, patient is obese. Uh, instead, say patient has a BMI of 32. Patient's obese. So I, I don't know how to fight it, really, unless we repeal, health, uh, repeal HIPAA and repeal some things like that, except to say it might just challenge you to come up with new ways to present the same data um, in a less inflammatory pattern. But again, if your documentation is tight and it's truthful and the patient is obese, 
a lawsuit's never going to result because I'm going to read the report and I'm going to say, gosh, the guy has a BMI of 32. He is obese. Uh, you know, uh, so again, good documentation can discourage a lawsuit just by simply providing, by indicating the care was fine. There was no problem with the care. And again, an attorney's not going to risk his $150,000 for your grudge. Hey, I appreciated your talk. Um, I'm going to email my medical assistant right after this and ask him to go through the biopsy log again. Um, just to look for people who haven't gotten treated over the past couple months. Um, but my question is this. I talked to a pretty well-respected dermatologist um, early on in my career who, who I won't name, but who's lectured at this meeting before in years past. And I was talking to him about um, complicated patients who've got a lot of atypical pigmented lesions, like your classic dysplastic nevus syndrome patient, and as far as documenting visits with those folks. And um, one thing he told me, which kind of stuck with me, is if you're not going to biopsy it, you should document it as little or as vaguely as possible. Hmm. And that kind of has to do with, you know, over-documenting that 9-millimeter asymmetric, um, you know, pigmented lesion, which a year down the line decides to become a melanoma and change. I'm just wondering if you could, you could comment yeah. on that. So, so his question pertains, is there ever, basically if I, I summarize his question for everybody that can't, couldn't hear that, um, his question has to do with, is there ever an advantage to, to not documenting something very thoroughly? And he gave the example of a very worrisome pigmented lesion and you describe it as a worry, worrisome and pigmented lesion. That there probably are. You know, there's no absolutes in life. There's no guarantees in life. Uh, so there probably are situations where somebody's gotten out of something because it wasn't in the medical record at all. In fact, sometimes I wonder when I'm reviewing the, the, the uh, uh, residence notes, one of the things I like the least is when they've inserted something in the note that I didn't have anything to do with at all. And I think, gosh, I didn't really look at the right calf at all. I didn't even know we had a, a point of concern on the right calf. And so that is a problem. Um, because now it says right calf in the, in the, in the chart and, and the patient's gone home and everything else. And I've actually, on a few occasions, had to have the patient come back and say, gosh, you know, when I actually took a closer look at the resident's note that evening, there was something that we didn't discuss at all. Um, so there might be, and, and let's say the opposite happens, we looked right at this huge, huge lesion and nobody mentioned it all anywhere. That might even be an advantage someday because that might become a melanoma. And I'd say, well, gosh, I didn't review that lesion at all. I didn't have any involvement in that case at all. So there might be occasionally advantages, but the only thing you could say in counterpoint is saying, if you're describing a lesion that horribly, if you're describing a nine millimeter irregular pigmented lesion with multiple colors, why the heck didn't you biopsy it? So, so that's the only thing I could say in my defense is maybe if you're really doing things in a straightforward manner and you really described a nine millimeter variegated horrible looking black, pa uh, macular papule, maybe you should have biopsied it. So, so again, maybe if we're providing the right standard of care, we have nothing to worry about. And if we're kind of running fast and loose, or maybe the patient declined the biopsy, in which case we need to say, I offered the patient a biopsy like I did on that slide, and the patient declined. That's a great statement. I don't ever want those people as attorney. As their attorney, I don't want that case. They declined a biopsy, and now they're mad about it? That's, that's, psh. Your thoughts on um, the physician extender, with the physician, we're on a rider regarding the insurance policy. Mm -hmm. If there is a suit, um, is there a difference in allegiance to the, from the insurance uh, uh, carrier to the physician versus the physician extender? And is there a conflict of interest? Will they assign you their own lawyer? Or do we have to go mm -hmm. outside to a different? Well, e each state would be a little bit different. So again, if you go back to that one slide where I said malpractice is tort law, and, and it's civil law, and it's decided on a state-by-state state, by state basis. In some states, you can't even, you know, in some states, you can't even sue the physician as extender under any circumstances. You always have to sue the doctor. And in other states, you can sue both, and in some states, you can even sue just one. Uh, but, but so, so it would have to be decided at the state-to-state -state level, but it probably always is good and worth an investment to discuss the case with some attorney in your state. It has to be a licensed attorney in your state, but it probably is a good idea to discuss the situation, even if it's sort of on your own dime, outside of the purveys of, of what's covered in your policy or anything else, and just say, 
you know, do you see any conflicts of interest? Because they could arise if you're in a state where you could be blamed for the accident and somehow the physician could be, you know, extricate himself from the situation. That might be a conflict of interest. So they might arise. And, and I'm talking about a two or three hour uh, counseling session with an attorney might be 200, 300 bucks an hour. So you're talking about less than $1,000 to just say, hey, you know, what, what do you perceive to be uh, any conflicts of interest and should I, should I seek my own counsel or anything else? And it might vary a little bit on the state law and the situation, the legal specifics uh, of the case. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for a great talk. We implemented the informed refusal to treat in our office, the piece of paper. And um, I have a patient, he's actually a judge, he's a district judge, he has two biopsy-proven basal cell carcinomas on his chest that he has refused to treat. He has signed the form. Mm -hmm. My question is, as he comes back, like for his six-month and yearly follow-ups, should he sign a new one each time, or is it just that one that's already on the chart is enough over the years. Yeah, so, so my general advice would be twofold. One, I, I don't think that it would be necessary to have him re-sign that, as long as it's an informed consent that was properly documented, um, where you really did say the consequences will be X, Y, and Z if you don't. I, I don't think you have to get it re-signed every single time. But again, I'm big on avoiding a hassle before it ever becomes a big deal. So, so, so my advice is always, that's why I say put missed appointments into the chart. Make them part of your note. Patient missed appointments on, it doesn't have to be a long statement. Patient missed appointments on blah, 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 blah. Here's the rest of the history. Because that might be all that reaches the attorney's desk. So again, even though he comes back every single time and you have the informed refusal on file, I would probably at least say, uh, in, uh, discuss basal cell and informed re refusal on file. Uh, patient has no changes in his, his perspective or his decision or anything like that. So that if that's the only piece of paper that reaches the attorney, you don't get hassled until you know, sometime three months later after a, a law bill of $3,200 or $3,300, it's discovered that there is this informed refusal out there. So I would just occasionally refresh the chart, uh, you know, informed refusal on file. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs>